Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. Let's get right to it. There's a lot that's happening in the world, in travel, lots that we should see and do. And to help me discuss this, I want to invite back to the show, Jason Cochran. Hey, Jason, welcome back. Hi, Pauline. Nice to be back. So you've been on the road, right? Where'd you go? What'd you see? And why should others follow in your tire treads? (laughs) Yeah, well, now that summer is sort of behind us, I guess I say sort of because I was just in the desert where it almost is never fully behind you. Um, I did a road trip in the California desert, a couple hours east of Los Angeles. I'm talking about the area that is famous for Joshua Tree National Park, for Palm Springs, uh, for uh, what's called the Salton Sea, which is this ecological disaster. I can get to all of it. But, you know, we've been making road trips on Fromers for many years, and I decided this is an area that needed – we needed a good road trip for it. Uh, so so I sort of did one and, and to sort of figure out how you can basically do two or three days out of Los Angeles in this really fascinating part of the country. Now, is it a part of the country that you can visit year round or do you have to wait until the cooler months to go? You could technically go year round. It's harder to do the hikes and to get out there and to see the things in the height of summer. Because it can be 115, 120 degrees during the summertime in some parts of the desert. Um, but by October, uh, which is why I said summer's behind us, it's a much more – you can go out and do whatever you want at any time because the, the weather is much cooler and it's hospitable. So um, I'm pegging my road trip to be done between October and May. But that's the high season for tourism in, in Southern California anyway. Uh, because, right. because of the heat just does get extreme in, in the in the Palm Springs area, especially. So you leave from Los Angeles and then you're heading towards Palm Springs. What is there along the way to see? Or do you just make a quick beeline to Palm Springs and really use that as the real start of the trip? I mean, you could really go in depth in the valley that you, the couple of valleys you pass through between LA and before you get to Palm Springs. I just picked a couple highlights. One of the highlights I picked is called the Mission Inn. This is fascinating. This is an old hotel that dates back to 1876, but they built on and built on and built on. And now it's like a giant castle, really, that takes up an entire city block in the city of Riverside, which is only an hour east of Los Angeles. So very doable. And this place is really incredible because it's all got this feeling of the turn of the last century. Ten different U.S. presidents have signed the guest book there, including Taft. They built him a special chair because he was a big boy, and he refused to <laughs> sit in it for photographers. So you can sit in the chair; it's still there. Uh, but you know, he was sort of humiliated by the size of the chair, so he wouldn't sit in it. Uh, but you know, Richard Nixon married Pat there. Betty Davis married one of her husbands there. Wow! You, it's just a fascinating. Place. It's popular with weddings still. But you can you can uh, go ghost hunting there if you spend the night. Um, I like to have the Mexican food in the courtyard with the beautiful towering parapets of this incredible hotel all around you. And it, it was big. No one's heard of it now, but it was big when they built it because it used to be when you wanted to go to the deserts from L.A. in the old days, it would take you all day to drive dusty, bumpy roads through farmland. Mm. So people would stop. For a few hours, have some margaritas, chill out, rest their bones, and then finish the journey. Now it only takes an hour. So this place is a little less known uh, as it should be. But it is really one of the great hotel destinations in the United States. There's a lot of history there. Interesting. Okay, so you go from that 
once famous, now should be famous hotel to Palm Springs? Or is there some other big highlight along the Uh, way? One of the things I want to point out for people, because everyone loves a good Instagram moment these days, is there are (laughs) a couple giant concrete dinosaurs roadside attractions. And I say those words, and I know people are already picturing them. They've probably seen them someplace, these giant concrete dinosaurs. One of the places they might have seen them is in the movie Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Which us Gen ah. Xers know really well from 1985. Pee Wee goes there and he goes to a restaurant next to it where he hears the legend of Large Marge. That's where this all happened. <laughs> Xers <laughs> know this very well. But it was also in the Everybody Wants to Rule the World, you know, that video with Tears for Fear. So big 80s thing, but they're still there and they paint them uh, for holidays. It's really a great, you know, pull off the uh, freeway, which is the 10. And get some pictures with the dinosaurs before continuing on. I have people then going into called the upper desert. Palm Springs is considered the lower desert. And upper just means it's more altitude. So you basically hang a left after the dinosaurs. And you go to Joshua Tree National Park, which is a fascinating desert uh, environment. It's one of those national parks. You know, national parks are, you know, blockbuster vista after blockbuster vista, like Yellowstone and Yosemite. This is about... The habitat. This is about kind of getting up close and looking, trying to find the animals and understanding why, you know, same land two miles apart will have completely different types of uh, things growing on it. So yeah. um, Joshua Tree National Park is known for the Joshua Tree, which is a modern name for it's, – it's, it's a variety of yucca basically and, and, and the branches are all scraggly and twisted. Um, and uh, the, is uh, yucca another word for cacti or no? I, I'm not a botanist, so I don't know that answer, <laughs> but I know that one of your listeners will know the answer to that. Um, okay, but it is part of the agave family, so that's a possibility. Hmm. Um, so, but the Joshua tree um, is threatened, and there are some scientists who say that even in Joshua Tree National Park, in another 80 years, 0.002 percent of the Joshua trees that are there will still be there because climate change is destroying the very few places that the world offers for them to live. So if you want to go see Joshua trees and this amazing plant that that people had been writing about for a century, this is like one of the best places, if not the best place to go see it. And it might be some of the last times you can go see it. So that's one reason mm. I have people going there. It's not so easy to hike there in the summertime, but most of the hikes there are super easy, like a mile long and a loop. And they know it's a desert park. So the rangers set up walks that almost anybody at any age can do, uh, even if it's a little warm out. So it's a great place to take a driving tour. So you can drive on through, do a little hike for an hour or two, get back in the car, keep driving and enjoying the scenery. And that's what I do when I drive tour. Yeah. Oh, it sounds great. And then you head to oh, that Palm night. Oh, Springs. I go on and on about this. There's so much fascinating stuff out here in the desert. There's this place <laughs> not too far from Joshua Tree called Pioneer Town, which was built as a kind of like a movie set. So that you know, all the film stars could just instead of going miles and miles and miles and miles away, they go two hours away and film there. Like it looks like an old western town, type of saloon, you know, little jail. Mm-hmm. Now it's become a tourist attraction. Movies aren't really shot there anymore. There's a motel there, which I'll have people stay on my driving tour. But there's this great, like, looks like a roadside roadhouse, uh, you know, bar. It's it's called Pappy and Harriet's. It's been there since '84. And it's just a great place to hang out. They do fantastic barbecue. They do concerts almost every single night. And it's huh? always packed. You're like in the middle of the desert. And suddenly you roll up to this place and there's a you know a 20-minute wait to get in. You're like, where am I? Because everyone loves wow. it. It's such an interesting destination. And five years ago, Paul McCartney actually did a surprise gig on this tiny little stage. It's like in a restaurant. 
And Paul McCartney is there. Pappy and Harriet's it's 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 a lot of fun. Uh, the food's fantastic, and I can't recommend it more. So I'm going to put that in the driving tour too, so people will know um, where it is and how to get there. It, it's a uh, it's some of these places, you know, in the desert, things look scarier than they really are. Everything looks like it could be a biker bar or it's you know falling apart, and then you go inside, and that's where the people are. It's like Paris or Athens. That's where the, the life is all hidden behind closed doors, and uh, they're so friendly. Uh, once you get in there, you you look a little afraid to go into it, but then you go in and you're not, you're, you're you want to go back the next day. Wow, very cool. Well, I'm not going to guide you. I keep telling, saying, and then you get to, but I I don't know where you get to well, next. I will, so where we'll do you get this, to? I'll next? write all of this and it'll be upon Fromers in <laughs> weeks, I guess. <clears throat> but I take people to Palm Springs, and I think people have heard a lot about Palm Springs. You know, the manicured lawns and the the uh, the old mid century modern architecture. I'll delve into that as well. But after Palm Springs, I go to a place called the Salton Sea. Have you heard of the Salton Sea? No, okay. I have not. So it was a, a little over, maybe 120 years ago. There was some sort of – something bad happened with, a, I think, a viaduct for the uh, aqueduct for the Colorado River or something like that. And a lot of water spilled out and it basically filled a low point in the desert and made it an enormous – sea an inland lake massive and at the time developers rejoiced they said we have a new lake in the desert how fantastic <laughs> they built marinas for boats they they brought people into fish and hotels and it was it was glorious for about 20 or 30 years the problem is it's not a natural lake and there's not a natural flow of water into it so like the Dead Sea in the Middle East, it began to dry and it began to shrink and it began to get more and more saline. So the fish started to die and the birds had a harder time and all of the yachting clubs closed. Now it's like this post-apocalyptic weird desert landscape where you see vestiges of what was once a vacation land. You know, old gas stations that are now rusting and things, but it is now almost completely abandoned. And it smells a little too because it's also kind of near the San Andreas Fault and so methane comes up. So it just oh. feels like an absolute environmental disaster. They can't figure out how they're going to fix this problem. They can't figure out how to get water. They want to put water into it maybe to dilute it again, but they can't get the water hundred and something miles inland to, to get it done without spending billions huh. of dollars. No one's sure. But it is fascinating. And they're still – very few little settlements that are still by the Salton Sea where very iconoclastic artist type people live because it costs next to nothing to live there. There's a, there's a town called Bombay Beach and it's uh, it really is, you know, cinder blocks and broken asphalt and chain link fence and you're a little frightened. But then you look closer and like almost everyone who lives there is an artist. One person has turned an old airplane into a giant shark. Uh, basically huh. by sculpture. Another person has taken a lot of abandoned cars and made a fault fake drive-in filled with all these old cars lined up in front of the screen. It's like this amazing little photo op. And I went into the only real bar in this town. And again, you'd think it'd be a terror. You'd think I'm not going to a bar in a town that looks like, you know, this. And you yeah. get in there, it's covered with dollar bills, you know, like they used to be in the 70s, those old bars, you know, <laughs> on the ceilings and the wall. And they're just as friendly as can be and recommending the new IPA, you know, they'll cook you a hamburger. It's just a lot of fun. Um, so it's a very strange environment that was brought by a lot of, you know, environmental mistakes and it still has more environmental problems to solve. But the people there are so fascinating and they're, they're, they've chosen to be there for a reason. So it's a great place to visit. 
Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. I'm excited. And, you know, I should say we're going to have this on firmers.com as a driving tour you can read, but we're also partnering with the app road.travel, uh, creating road trips that will maybe someday be embedded in cars. That's the hope. Uh, but but in, in the meantime, they'll be able to bought, be bought. They, they have GPS systems attached. I did one that I discussed with Jason on the show a couple of weeks ago. It's actually now live. Uh, my Redwood Empire one is up there. We have another one up there uh, to Gold Country. And so we're, we're doing a bunch to California and we're going to see if it works, see if, if the partnership makes sense. Uh, but it, it, it should be very interesting. And we'll also turn these into driving tours for fromers.com just because there's so much great material. Uh, Jason, I got to tell you, last night I went to the 150th anniversary celebration for Holland America. Did you know that Holland America was that old? I didn't. I thought just Cunard was about that. Well, Cunard's a little older. I didn't know it was that. How did it start? As a ferry boat or something? It, no, it started as a uh, shipping service, but not for goods, for immigrants to the United States. They would go from Holland to Plymouth, because Plymouth apparently is one of the last major ports between Europe and here. It's the, it's where you get all your coal and you make your big voyage. It's like Plymouth, and- England. In Plymouth in England. But, so it goes oh, from it goes from Amsterdam to Plymouth and then to the United okay. States. Pilgrims did that. That's what they did. Yeah. were started in Holland really before they came to Plymouth. So yeah, it's an old Exactly. Route. It's an old route and ten percent of the people who went through Ellis Island, who got their uh, entry into the U.S. there, came on a Holland America ship. <laughs> they say it's because the Dutch were very fastidious about giving their passengers in-depth information on what you needed to know to get past the uh, folks uh, at Ellis Island, because apparently they didn't want to take people home if they were uh, <laughs> if they were not oh, allowed back. Yeah. Uh, and so and so they became known as if you take Holland America to the U.S., you'll get in. Uh, but because of that, they've done a partnership with Ellis Island. Uh, they're giving that historic site a lot of money. They've created a special little display for the next couple of months at Ellis Island. And so I was on board the ship. It was the Rotterdam, which is their seventh version of a ship called Rotterdam. This one debuted in 2021, if you can imagine. Uh, I think it was probably pretty quiet until recently, but it seemed to be full. A lot of, uh, you know, diehard Holland America fans who wanted to be there for the uh, 150th anniversary celebrations. And I didn't realize this, but Holland America has a partnership with Lincoln Center. It gets a lot of artists from there to perform on their ships. So they had an entire orchestra on board the ship playing music composed for the occasion. And they showed a video of uh, the, you know, the immigrant days and then the days when they pioneered routes mostly, mostly to uh, Alaska. They were one of the first cruise ships to take uh, tourists to Alaska. And then they opened up, helped open up the Caribbean. And so that they showed the whole history of the, of the line 
we ate pretty good food. They say they're known for their food and their music, I guess because of this Lincoln Center partnership. Um, and, uh, it, you know, they have celebrity chefs. Everybody seems to have them now who are the consultants, but they had, um, oh my goodness, who is that dashing French chocolatier? Oh, Armory <laughs> Guichon or something like that? He's no. with school chocolate? Jacques Torres. Oh, Jacques Torres. Jacques Torres was on board and he made a special chocolate treat and we got to look all around. What I thought about the ship was because everybody has to get a uh, balcony nowadays, there's just not enough outdoor space. I mean, it was very, very lovely. But I felt like so many of the times I would have liked to be just kind of wandering on a deck looking out at the sea. There just aren't many places you can do that on this ship. Yeah, it's a very common thing these days. You know, the Royal Caribbean announced its plans for its new icon of the seas, which is going to be the largest cruise ship by a tiny degree. And it's the same problem because they've got so many cabins stuffed in there. You know, the, the what used to be a pool deck is now carved out and there's very little space for it. But I don't think it's yeah. just because pe they, people want balconies. I think it's because they'd rather you be somewhere spending money. The time you're lying in the pool, so. you're probably not spending anything. So it's probably a calculation that they've derived by a Excel spreadsheet that how to maximize money. Yeah. So that was that was my criticism. On the other hand, it was very handsomely decorated. I thought actually the art on the walls was good. The art was really nice. I was surprised. A or recently. I've taken cruises, but not not since the pandemic. So I think this might have been my first time on a big honking cruise ship since since the pandemic. So that was it was interesting. I'm not a huge fan of these prefab environments where they, you know, you have a group of executives creating places where you're going to want to vacation. But Holland America is a classy outfit. And for, for that, for people who like it, I think they do a good job. They have something called the music walk, where you go from club to club on one area of the ship, and there are different types of live music happening, uh, which I thought was really kind of nice, very, very lovely. Uh, and the food was pretty darn good. So music and food, who knew? I didn't know that was the hallmarks of a Holland America ship. You know, I but do I think know a lot of young artists who do find a lot of work on cruise ships. They go on for a few weeks and come off again. I know a couple stand-ups. I know some musicians, some pianists. So they do find really good people uh, yeah. to come on and off. And so you're right. Music and entertainment in general has become more of a focus than it used to be. Absolutely. So that was that was really, really fascinating. Now, Jason, before we leave Palm Springs, you were there recently and you wrote about it for Fromers.com for a pretty big deal. What what does Palm Springs now have in one of its museums? Disney fans are nuts about this development. There was a private plane that Walt Disney purchased in late 1963. So we're talking the time when he was flying over Florida to scope out the land he wanted to buy for Walt Disney World. And that plane was in use until his death in 66, but then onward all the way to the early 90s as a corporate plane. So there's a lot of Disney history in this one Grumman Gulfstream plane. and But for the last 20, 25 years, it was sitting derelict in, a, in an area of Walt Disney World in the hot sun, falling apart, and the fans 
their Disney fans are really <laughs> enthusiastic bunch, as you well know, had been begging yes. for Disney to spend the money to preserve this thing because so much history, corporate history especially, had happened on it. Finally, Disney rescued it from its place where it was languishing in Florida. They did, a, you know, I think a bit of um, historical um, looking about, you know, how – because they didn't have a lot of the documents for it. So huh. They didn't even know where it had flown. They had to track down the family of the pilot to find out all the log books where they were. They finally pieced it all together and they've let – they've loaned the plane permanently on a permanent basis to the Palm Springs Air Museum. So huh. you, Disney fans can finally go see this plane that they were only able to sort of peer at from a distance for many years when they went to the Disney uh, parks. And it's a it's really cool uh, uh, history to the thing um, because they found these log books. books. And you, people will go, well, why the heck is it in Palm Springs? Because two days after Disney purchased the thing and he took delivery of it, it was flying to Palm Springs. It flew to Palm Springs so regularly because he and his family had a house here. So he would fly his his Imagineers here and executives here to wine and dye them. He'd fly here, you know, for the weekends. So there's a lot of history for the plane in Palm Springs, and that's why it ended up at this really terrific air museum that covers basically all the whole history of flight. It has samples of aircraft going back, you know, all the way to World War One. So it's really an interesting. Um, interesting exhibit you can find out if you're interested in aviation you're interested in history there is a whole lot of it at the at the palm springs air museum which is actually part or attached to the palm springs airport uh which was military back in the day so huh. this incredible plane is finally there you can't go inside it but they're they're putting together really interesting exhibit exhibits about what was inside and how it flew and who flew on it you know um, Julie Andrews flew on it. Ronald Reagan flew on it. Jimmy Carter flew on it. And of course, Annette Funicello. So the great four <laughs> flew on it. <laughs> it's really fascinating. To, to, it's very rare that a corporation uh, spends the money to, to you know, fix up something so large. And it's something that, that or a corporation has very little expertise in. They don't know anything about airplanes, which is, I think, another reason it's at an air museum and, and not uh, right. on Disney property. Yeah, well, it's cool. And you did a great job on the article. You can read it on fromers.com. Well, thank you so much, Jason. Always such a delight to speak with you. Thanks. And next we are going to be talking about space. So I was going to say, don't turn that dial, but it's no longer radio. So here comes that segment. Andrew Fazekas is the lead author of a new book. It's a gorgeous one from National Geographic. It's called Stargazer's Atlas, The Ultimate Guide to the Night Sky. Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Andrew. Oh, it's great to be here. So I know that a lot of travelers like to gaze at the night sky uh, when they when they travel, a lot of times because they can't see it when they're at home. Why is it that that sky gazing has become something that we often only do on vacation? Yeah, it's because we've we've really cut ourselves off of nature in most respects, especially when it comes to the night sky and its beauty. With all those stars, those points of light being masked by light pollution, uh, the vast majority of uh, the human species lives in or around large cosmopolitan areas. Uh, and uh, with that, of course, all the technology, we light everything up. And yeah. that really 
just basically cuts off most of the night sky. Just to give you a perspective, uh, on a very uh, clear night in the center of uh, of a downtown core of a large city, say maybe two, three million population, at the very center, you would maybe be lucky to see two dozen stars at most, at hmm. mo- the very most. If you wow. go out to a typical suburb, that number goes up to about two to 300 stars. If you go out to a very dark sky preserve, maybe a desert like the Sahara Desert or something where it's totally pristine, that number can jump to as large as six to 7,000 stars. Wow. Human eye can see. Yeah. Amazing. So there is now a thing, you talk about it in the book, called astro-tourism. Uh, what are some of the best places in the United States for folks to engage in astro-tourism? Well, Basically, astrotourism, yes, is is this astronomy-based theme, astro-themed uh, vacations, and um, this is becoming more popular in in, in terms of dest- finding these destinations. And we're lucky because there are uh, groups, associations that have now uh, brought about. Uh, these designated sites, these desig- official designations or certifications in terms of how much light pollution or the lack of light pollution some of these remote re- areas really have. Um, right. So uh, in in the United States, some good uh, ones that, that come to mind are like, for instance, the Grand Canyon National Park or... Uh-huh. Um, uh, Yellowstone. Uh, these national parks tend to have really dark sides, and there are other ones as well, lesser well-known ones, like but, uh, Craters of the Moon National Park. I love the fact that yeah. every spring and every fall, you say in the book, there are star-watching parties that scientists attend to basically lend their expertise and their equipment uh, to the public so that they can get a really great view of the night sky from there. Yeah, I mean, there's star parties that are uh, are organized particularly by uh, – by amateur astronomers that, uh, you know, bring out their telescopes and you could have, you know, a whole wonderful evening of exploring the night sky through, you know, not just like presentations, lectures, but also actual views through telescopes, uh, close up of things like galaxies, star clusters. And because the skies are so pristine, uh, it really provides wonderful, really the best views that you can have. And some amateur astronomers have quite large telescopes where you hmm. even need ladders to go up <laughs> wow. uh, to, to reach the eyepiece. And you can imagine the views from instruments like those are quite impressive. Yeah. All right. Well, what if you're out in the wilderness? You may or may not be in a dark sky park, but you're you're able to see the stars. How does somebody who doesn't usually spend much time stargazing, uh, prepare uh, to take in the universe in front of them. What what can they do? I mean, you obviously they get the stargazers 
Atlas. It's a massive book, though. I'm not sure how many people can travel with it. Uh, what are some other ways to prepare to, to look at the night sky when you're on vacation? Right. So the Stargazer's Atlas, as you've mentioned, it's six and a half pounds, a large coffee table <laughs> book. It's not the one yes. that you want to pack in your knapsack. And the, right. you know, that's definitely not. And there are others out there. And actually, I have another book called Backyard Guide to the Night Sky. It's a great companion also by National Geographic. And that that is a little pocket guide. That's fantastic ah. for that. But this book, Atlas, you would use before going on vacation and looking at what the skies will look like, uh, you know, when you're out there. So, and this could be, you could be traveling from the U.S. to, say, Chile in South America in the Southern Hemisphere. You would use uh -huh. this book to prep for that because it would kind of prepare you in the sense of, um, of what you can expect the night sky to look like from that part of the world, which will be very right. different from what we see here in the U.S. The Southern Hemisphere stars are quite foreign. If you, you, you know, like even for me, who uh, I live in Canada and I've, you know, totally used to what the Northern Hemisphere constellations are. When I went to the Southern Hemisphere the first time, oh my gosh, I was completely lost. Even the familiar constellations were upside down. And I had to yeah. really think about like for me it was upside down, not for no, folks down there, obviously. But that's when what I it, went to Australia, yeah. I was astounded. And I live in New York City, so I almost never get to see the night sky, but it really felt like I was on a different planet exactly. uh, looking up. It was incredible. Exactly. So there's this big difference between northern and southern hemisphere. And I'm 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 quite quite excited that the fact that uh, I was able to work with the, the 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 folks at National Geographic, making sure that we give equal time, a space mm. in the book for Southern Hemisphere friends who are stargazers there, because uh, you know everyone travels the world, and there's so many destinations, and it's really neat to be able to include the skies from all of these different locations, and so. You'd use this book to kind of learn about what the skies look like, how to star hop, all of those those techniques. And when you're what is, wait, what wait, 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 what is star hopping? Ah, well, star hopping <laughs> is this really uh, basic technique of 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 just hopping from one part of the sky to the next using bright stars, and then maybe progressively fainter stars. You you know the constellations that we all know about are basically star patterns patterns connect right. the dots patterns of of bright stars that make up a picture some of these are very ancient all cultures have have them uh, uh depiction these depictions of of the night sky and what we right. do as 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 practical sky watchers we look for the brightest stars and we kind of hop from one star to the next in and that connection will allow you to learn individual constellations. So huh. it's it's really like reading a map, learning, you know, when you go to a new city and you bring out that map of the city and you look for all those uh, places, those landmarks to help guide you from one place to the next, knowing the streets that you need to go on. And except these streets are now on uh, are are in the sky and you're drawing right. them from one one star to the next as a, in, in a mental picture of it as you're as you're watch, you know watching the sky and then you find those 
destinations. You want to go see that art museum or you want to go see, you know, hmm. some other uh, restaurant or for instance, that's the kind of thing that you're doing in the sky, finding where that star cluster is or where uh. that galaxy is. You have to learn the signposts in the sky. Uh-huh. And that's, that's what, fascinating. That's what we do in, in, in these kind of guidebooks. Now, uh, there are other resources you can take. For instance, everyone, most of us have a, a smartphone. You can load sure. up apps, uh, planetarium apps onto your phone. And because it uses the GPS of your phone, it can actually know where you are in the world, specifically your location. And therefore, it will project the map on your on your uh, phone screen exactly what you're seeing uh, in the sky at the moment. And so uh, it's it's way better than right. uh, anything else because then you're you you know you're you're generating these maps basically on the fly as you're moving around. It can actually follow, detect your movement. So hmm. it's kind of virtual stargazing uh, tool that you you, yes. you have at your fingertips. And so that highly recommend. Maybe if you're more old school, you can uh, you could uh, print out. Uh, star maps. There's a free application called Stellarium, a mm. planetarium app, totally free. You can create maps of the sky for whenever you want, whatever date and time of night and whatever location you want in the world. Those things Very really cool. help as well. And yeah. then maybe a pair of binoculars, you know, you want to be a little more venturesome. The binoculars are great for vacationers because they can be used for terrestrial observing, obviously. Sure. But then they double up as a great, uh, you know, night sky tool as well. And it brings in things like star clusters and nebula. You can pan through the Milky Way band that might be stretched above your head. Lots mm. of hours of, of great exploration with just a pair of binoculars. Uh, you make it sound so romantic. Uh, we also talk in the book, or you also talk in the book, about archaeoastronomy, which I think is very interesting for travelers. And that is uh, places you can go to see how ancient cultures used the night sky and often engineered uh, vast monuments or cities or different types of, of stone and other material tools uh, around the heavens. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of the ones you can see in the United States. Right. So, you know, archaeoastronomy is something that we don't traditionally would find in most books today, and especially popular level books, and let alone you wouldn't find it in an atlas. But I made sure that this is something that we would cover because when it comes to people thinking about the night sky, this is something that humans have done for thousands of years back into prehistoric right. times. And that's what we're talking about here is a lot of amazing cultural references that exist. And here, even in the United States, there's uh, uh, places like Chaco Canyon uh, and Serpent Mound, uh, both on the West and East Coast, that really uh, show that our ancestors uh, really reveled in the night sky. They built observatories, monuments that were dedicated to, usually like these are with, with the movement of the sun and the moon. These were... Mm. 
important to ancient cultures because they reference times when to har- uh, harvest, for instance, or when to mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, lay down crops, seeds, uh, when there was f- localized flooding, for instance, of rivers and lakes and things like that. So they were tied to environmental effects into their daily lives, many cases. Right. And so that these kind of things are still in evidence today. You can go to these kind of locations scattered across the globe and kind of have that astronomical themed uh, vacation in a sense and still tied to the sky, but to the ancient skies. Yes, absolutely. And I love the fact that in the book, you debunk some myths. Uh, You talk about how, unfortunately, certain archaeological sites were tampered with, and so maybe the axis is slightly off or was fixed in place in a way that we're not sure that our ancient ancestors knew to do. I mean, uh, you give a really nice deep dive into the fact that we are not the first humans to have gazed at the night sky uh, and tried to find a pattern of our destiny there, that it's it's something uh, that ties us so so intimately to the past. Exactly. And, it, you know, it's this common heritage that humanity has when it comes to the night sky. And this is what we, we really wanted to, to, to the bring, bring, raise awareness with people is that it is something deep uh, for humanity. It's in our DNA, practically. Storytelling, especially about the night sky, goes back so far and so many cultures. It's really incredible. And so we just wanted to dabble in that uh, in to raise people's awareness that it really is global in nature. Absolutely. Well, you've done that spectacularly in this new book. My congratulations to you and the entire team. It's It's a really great resource. Why, thank you. I mean, it's uh, it's something, you know, two years in the making, six and a half pounds of cosmic knowledge. <laughs> Back then, it was quite a Herculean effort to put it together, but I think it, 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 we pulled it off, and I'm hoping people have a, a great time, as, at least as much as I did and my team did in putting it together and reading through this, spend hours with a nice cup of coffee or tea and, and uh, plan some of your yeah. own cosmic adventures. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. And thanks to all of you for listening. We've come to the end of another show. I thank you so much for being here. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. Watching